Dear listener of the show, you put the boom boom into my heart. And I appreciate it. I mean, I really do. And and you send my soul sky high when your loving starts. And it just means everything to me. Thanks for listening. And I hope you enjoy this episode. <laughs> this is Bucky Sinister. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. And on the Drinks with Tony show. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Bucky Sinister. He's the author of Time Bomb Snooze Alarm, Black Hole, a novel, Get Up, a 12-step guide to recovery from misfits, freaks, and weirdos. He's also a stand-up comedian and actor, and he's part of the Business LA. That's a, a comedy showcase that runs every Monday at Little Joy's in Echo Park, Los Angeles. Bucky, how you doing, man? I'm, I'm all right. How are you? Did you like how my announcer voice just kicked in? Yeah, yeah, that's real, real natural of you there. <laughs> you kind of looked at me like, wait, wait, where was, where was the guy I was just talking to? <laughs> exactly. It's like, yeah, I don't know you. Um, you're in L.A. now. You moved, how, When did you move to L.A.? It was about three years ago? Uh, it was 2016, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I came down here for a week. In like March of 2016, and I was just like, ah, I just like it here better. You know, I can just, I can just, I can leave. You know, I really, really the right move for me to was to leave the Bay Area. It didn't really matter where I went, you know. And uh, it was just time to go, you know. And I would have been fine any number of places, but I, I picked here because I've been here for a week, and it was a lot of fun. And you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of things here that weren't available to me in uh, in the Bay. So I was like, okay, let's give this a try. You can always leave again in a year if you want. I mean, that's how I moved to the Bay. I was like, yeah, you can leave in a year if you want. You know, give it a year. And I was there for like 20-something years, 26, 27 years, something like that. And like, you know, just, you know, give it a try. See if you like it. You know, no big deal. You know? Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, as far as I'm concerned, you feel like kind of a San Francisco institution to me. And then it's like, and then we got, and then so I, I'm down here too. And then it's just like, oh, wait, we have our San Francisco comrades who, who came to L.A. Yeah, you know, like a lot of that San Francisco institution stuff, it's like people think San Francisco is however it was when they moved there. Like that's how they think it's always been, you know. And, you know, no, like you know, like you'll see some place like some favorite bar or nightclub gets torn down there. Everybody's like, oh, man, San Francisco's lost. It's like that was a different bar or nightclub before you got there. Like that, you push someone out to have that place, you know, and you know, but but some people say, oh yeah, that's like a, this is like a classic San Francisco thing. It's like, I wasn't there in '92, like you know, in '92 it was like a different a different person's bar, and then you know, then became like your cool hipster bar, and you know, just because it was there, like in you know, by the time you moved there, like five years ago, doesn't mean it's always been there or whatever, and that's that's kind of how the whole thing is, and you know, and. I don't know. San Francisco very much is different. A lot of different eras, and at some point, I think if you're a creative person and you're not helping it, you should leave. You know, it's like when I kind of got to a point where I didn't want to like put on any more shows there or whatever. It was time to go. Like I'm not just going to be one of those people who says it used to be better there. You know, it's like you know, it's like if you if you don't like it, you can either make it better, or you can go. I guess is the point. Like either try to make it better. You know, make one thing that you like better or take off. Yeah. Go somewhere else. Yeah. You know, go somewhere else that you like. Hey. That makes sense. Thank you. Because oh, I mean, when I used to go to San Francisco in the 80s and visit my great-grandparents in Noe Valley, they were all pissed off that the yuppies were moving into Noe Valley because that was a working-class neighborhood. So it's just funny. I've seen it. I, I got to the point where I didn't care either. I mean, it's you just like, oh, that's a shame. But, yeah, there was something there before that and... Everyone's always kind of mad about it. I, I, I like yeah. L.A. because, well, um, I guess I don't have as much emotional connection to a lot of things. So people are like, oh, my God, that's closing. I'm like, ah, never been there. <laughs> you can, you know, if you see there's a gap in a thing, like, like when I was running up, well, when I got to the poetry scene in, you know, the late 80s uh, in San Francisco, it was, like, not really a good place for young people. And by young people, I mean people under 35. You know, I was like 20 at a time. And uh, so I, I, I made this little open mic night and just kind of, I kind of catered to younger people. But mostly I just only told younger people about it. So they really kind of came and stuck their flag in the ground. 
and uh, you know most of the poetry scene there was over 35, like and and, and and maybe even over 40. And you know, so to be young at a poetry reading, you get up there and people just ignore you. They'd heckle you just for being a kid. You know, holding you up to their standards. You know, like, you know, I had like real poets like judging me on like love poems I wrote as a 19 year old. You know, it's not. It's kind of rough. You know, so we we kind of made our own place. Then by the fact that it was an open mic and whatever it became decidedly male you know and I couldn't really do much about that you know because it was just kind of the thing so like Michelle T and Cindy Anderson they, they were coming there a lot and they're like yeah there's too many dudes here and I'm like and, and so they're like we're going to start a women's open mic and then they started one down the street down, it was at Blondie's sister spit started at Blondie's so they had it on Sundays and I had mine on Mondays you know and that that's that's kind of the thing it's like hey there's a problem here like, we should make something else. Like, that to me is, like, where artists and creative people should be. It's like, don't say, like, you know, like, if you don't like the way something's running, you see there's a gap, there's a need for something else. You just make it, you know. Or you should go away. You know, I, and that's that's the thing. There's some people who, like, you know, say, like, oh, it should be, this should be run differently. I'm like, no, you should run your own thing differently. And make a thing how you think it should be, and instead of trying to convince someone else to change their already existing thing. And to me, that's how like creative movements and stuff start, and how things really get going, and how you can see real change happen. Like Sister Spit still has um, a legacy now. It's a full nonprofit uh, corporation that that still like you know their their tours now are, are epic and they're super legit and everything. And it's it's got a whole infrastructure. And it was started just basically like from you know two women seeing a need you know and, and just filling it on this real small scale and then they just kept scaling it up like year after year until it got to be this big thing and that that's what like you know art and artists should be and if you if you ask me like you know there's there's a like a lot of people complaining now about everything it's a culture of complaint like i don't like how game of thrones ended or whatever you know and it's just like well no that's so you should make your own show then and they're like, no, no, it should end how I think it should end. You know, like what you've, like you know, no, no, it just that, that's that's your call to make another thing. It's like there's not enough of this or this in this show, or in this movie, or in this comedy scene, or whatever. It's like, well, now you get to go do your own thing. And uh, I don't know. Uh, yeah, that's just how I kind of see a lot of the, the the art world and whatever. Yeah, it totally makes sense. And then. Um and then you and then you started the business in San Francisco. I remember I, I remember I did a, a storytelling one at the uh, dark room. I think you had storytellers and readers and also comedians. I, I like, yes. like about a decade ago, yeah. Exactly. Like well there's another thing like I was I was in a position in San Francisco where it's like I think there's not enough stage time given to comics. Yeah. Not enough big chunks. Everyone's doing like these 7-minute sets, these 5-minute sets. It's like we need a space where we can do like 20 minutes well rather than convince someone else to give me 20 minutes at a time on stage well I just got like three other people to help me out and we rented a space and we each did 20 minutes every week you know it was like an 80 minute show every week um, and we just started doing it and then that's what I'm talking about then it became a thing where it's like you know we found a lot of other people who wanted slots big long slots and it turned into a really good show for a while we had one going in New York, we had one going here, and we had that one in San Francisco. We had three shows going at one time. The one in, Michelle Wolf was in the one in New York. Like, she blew up, you know. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a really good idea. And, like, now it's kind of morphed and evolved over time. And it's not like what it was when it started, but it's still kind of going in some capacity. And it's like, I can't really get stage time here. You know, it's hard to get stage time in L.A., so I have my own show. And that, that's how it is. It's like, you know, just don't, I, I just don't, like, rather than trying to convince other people to give me more stage time, I'd rather just start my own show. Like, I'd just rather do that. It, it's it's less of an issue. Like, I, I'm not just going to burn all those calories trying to convince other people I'm good. I, I really don't like that, you know, in any, in any case. Like, I, I'd just rather, like, you know, just have my own thing. I'd rather have a show where, like, the business L.A. is really well attended, but... Even if it was like four people in the audience, I'd rather do it for four people on my own terms than to do it for like, you know, 100 people somewhere else doing it the way someone else tells me to do it. Now, I'm just not going to do that anymore. 
Yeah. And it totally makes sense, especially like, you know, that's, that's what I love about, you know what, if you're, if you want to do something, just do it no matter what, because no ma- even in the early days, we're not good at what we're doing and, and we need that time. It's like, I remember when I used to do college radio and they would, uh, they would always start the beginning DJs on the 2 a.m. shift. And I, and I used to go, no, this is ridiculous. I got to be on the afternoon drive. I know I'm better than this. And they're like, no, you're at 2 a.m. on Tuesday mornings. And I, I, went, I used to tape those shows and I go back and listen to those air checks. And I thank God that I was on 2 a.m. for about six months because I needed to do that in order to sound like, um, you know, sound like less of an idiot when they started getting on the primetime spots. So it's, um, there's a beauty to that where you just, you start it and at the same time you're working on your craft and then the craft gets better. And then you, and then you have, now you got a well-attended show in LA and you've been working on it for years. I mean, I saw you once at, um, I was at 12 Galaxies and I think you, you may have been opening for a band and you were doing your spoken word and it was kind of like a spoken word thing. And I sat there in awe because you had that whole audience one a bar like 12 galaxies where where i we let's explain that geographically it was like a long bar it's not a bar that's good for stand-up or comedy and then you're open then you have a band playing so everyone's waiting for the band so they're getting their drinks waiting for the band and then you go up there and you start your storytelling and people moved to the front and listened and my jaw was dropped that night it was probably like 2006 or something and i went Holy shit, Bucky is like new level, next level here. Yeah, that was a good time. Yeah. Do you remember what band that was? That was uh, Jesse Morris and the Man Cougars. Okay. Yeah, he ended up killing himself. Oh really? Yeah, he's no longer with us. He's um, it was really like he was kind of famously known for being the kid who sounded just like Johnny Cash in the uh, Bart stations. Oh, wow. He was he was like this punk kid, uh, grew up in the Tenderloin. Like, you know, with, with a drug-addicted dad. And, um, you know, just would busk in the uh, BART stations. And he sounded just like Johnny Cash. And he would sing, like, like um, Black Flag covers with a Johnny Cash voice. Okay. Yeah, yeah, you hear him singing. I think there's a clip of him singing YouTube, uh, singing six-pack on YouTube. You know, $24 in a six-pack to my name. Like, all that kind of stuff. But he does it. Like, it's dead on. He had a beautiful voice. You know, um, when did he die? That was was that around that time, or was that later? God, I don't know. Like 2012. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. um, he would. He had a lot of troubles, man. Yeah. A very talented kid. There we go. Just, just couldn't really get his life together. You know, on this other level. Yeah. Real damn shame. You know. Yeah. You know, cause he even tried to kill himself once and it didn't work. Oh, and it was just like, you know. Sometimes people are too much of a fuck up to get that right, yeah. you know. And it's just like, look, it's also some people are just resilient and they're going to survive stuff. And it's like, yeah, he should have been dead a number of times. Just some dumb stuff he'd done, and like he couldn't even kill himself. Like his body wanted to live, you know. And it finally took a lot to take him down. Do you know if you got help after the first time, or? Um... I mean, I don't even know. I can't even speak to that. Yeah. It's just, you know what I found, I mean, not to bring it down, but I found that sometimes when people try to kill themselves, it's almost a wake-up call when they get out of it, and they're like, okay, whoa, that was too close, now yeah, i got to work. Sure. It. sure, but yeah, he had, he had real deep troubles. I mean, it was not a cry for help, you know, and, uh, you know, uh, he really wanted to do it, you know. Yeah, it's a bummer. Yeah. But yeah, that's why when I was talking about the Twelve Galaxies room for not yeah. being a room, <laughs> conducive to that, you were nodding your head because that was just that was the opposite of a room where you would do spoken word. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, you know, I just done so many worse places though. It doesn't matter. I mean, that stuff can't shake me anymore. Like, you know, like a lot of my early stuff. You know, I was reading poems in between bands at warehouse shows. Or like eighty something, eighty nine to like ninety two, whatever. There's a big warehouse scene in San Francisco with like lots of 
places that just had these punk shows and I, you know, they let me read poems between bands and very few people wanted to hear that, you know. And I didn't care because it was stage time, you know what I mean? And I just get up there and do it and, you know, I mean, once you've been through that, like, you know, like, something like 12 Galaxies wasn't wasn't a problem, you know. And, and I've seen other people wilt, you know. And it's like, I've seen, I've seen a lot of comics that are just kind of precious and they just kind of melt down if the crowd's not responsive enough. It's like, you know, you know what, they're not trying to attack you. You know, maybe they're dead, maybe they're bored, but but they're they're not aggressive. They're not hostile. Like you're not gonna have to worry about how you're getting out of here tonight. You know, and once you've done a few gigs like that, it makes those, you know, makes the the kind of mild gigs. Everything looks mild. Like nothing nothing intimidates me. And it's like I don't understand. Like you know, a lot of comics just get nervous and stuff. It's like I think you're in the wrong business. You know, like. I don't know. Like, I just don't understand that. I know there are a lot of comics that have horrible stage fright. They get panic attacks and stuff. Even some really big names, you know, they're, they're a lot of anxiety meds and whatever. Just, just get up. I don't know why. It's like I think you know you should just be a novelist or something. You don't ever have to see anyone. You know what I mean? Like, you pick a different art. Like, they're creative people. They'd be good at other things. You know, just like you, there's a whole other art forms you can never see your audience. I do. I. <laughs> I did stand up for about a year around 2004, 2005, and I was getting booked on showcases and stuff. And I had a solid 10, 15 minutes after about a year or so. And I remember doing my last gig at uh, 111 Mena, and it, I killed, and it was great. But I, there was just such an emptiness inside me, and I was in a bad marriage at the time. So, I was, so at the same time, I was like looking at the crowd and going, "Great, I'm making all these people laugh, so they can go home and have sex, and I'm going to go home to sadness." And that, that night I was like, no, no, go because I was trying to figure out, do I go full steam ahead in writing or do I go full steam ahead doing stand-up? And, um, and then I, I just went, no, I'm a writer. I'm out. Yeah, I mean, that, yeah, you got to figure out who you are creatively, you know? Like, I won't be happy doing one thing, you know? I, I won't be. And there's some things that, you know, some things I try them as a poem and I'll try them as a stand-up bit and then I'll write them as prose and we'll see how it works out. You know, and uh, I like I like those things for different reasons. You know, I I wouldn't give up one for another. You know, uh, but then there's some people who just need to do one thing. You know, I'm more of kind of a Catholic type creatively, where it's like I want to kind of be a part of like every different genre I can think of. You know, and if I had any kind of sense of musical talent, I'd be a musician as well. You know, I've tried that. I can't. I something in my brain doesn't understand how that works the same way. You know, I can hear a sentence and understand all its parts, you know. And, you know, I, I know, like, when I hear, like, you know, either George Carlin or Langston Hughes, I can see, like, all the similarities. And I understand what each one's doing differently, you know. And it's like, I don't even think it's any different, you know. And, uh, you know, I, I, I get it. And I understand. Oh, I know what he's doing there. I know why he puts that word there. I know why he's ending that sentence that way. And with music, I, I don't even know. If I'm listening to a piece of music, I don't even understand which instrument is which instrument. I don't know. I can't hear the difference between them. It's like I just don't have the ear for it. I don't understand, you know, the rhythms and stuff. I don't. I don't get it. So, uh, you know, I'm just an observer on that point. And but I would do it in that. You know, I just like think every genre is great. You know, it's like I want to paint, I want to draw, I want to sculpt, I want to do everything. You know, and so it's like do I have access to these things? Not, not a lot. You know, but you know, with the words, there's so many different kind of word-based arts. You know, it's like I can write, like, you know, poetry or prose or self-help. I can, you know, I can do stand-up comedy. I can write theater. I can do whatever. And it's just all like a word-based thing. And it's to me, it's all the same. You know, it's just like, oh, it's like a little bit of a different format. You know, if like there's a, there's a poem that I wrote that I have played for tragedy. And I've done it as a stand-up bit and played it for comedy. And it's a matter of how I present it to the audience. Yeah. Yeah, I've done poetry on stage at the punchline, and you know I would never tell them that. I mean, they can hear it now if they want, but um, it's more because I don't read it out of a book; I just present it. But it's just like they don't understand like the similarities. Like a lot of people think that like, rap and poetry are, are very similar, but I think more stand-up and poetry are more similar than like you know, like everybody's like you know, oh, like any pick their favorite singer, like Dylan or like Tupac or anybody, like and they're like, oh, this is poetry, and it's like, well. I don't think so, so much. 
I think it's different, but I think really like you're getting closer when you talk about like you know the last cut on Richard Pryor's bicentennial record. That's you know the last cut is 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 very much a poem, like very much more a poem. And if you don't consider that a poem, why would you consider a song lyric a poem? You know, like it has more in common with poetry, and you know, especially what was going on in black poetry in 1976. Uh, than, than uh, you know, uh, than any of the rap music has with poetry, really. Like it's closer, you know. Uh, but yeah, it's all kind of the same to me. Like it's all just like, it's all just kind of a presentation. Like how you twist it around, how you give it to your audience, you know, what you do with it. And so, so when you're presenting a poem about, that's uh, based that you can present as tragedy or comedy, um, what? It, when you when you present it as comedy, is there um, is, is, do you give like different beats to it? Do you or uh, is it or or do you just go up there and it's a and it's a stand up crowd and they're just expecting comedy and they go, now that's funny. Well, I mean that's a lot of it. A lot of it has to do with audience expectation. Yeah. There's this thing in science called the observer effect. It means that like by by conducting the experiment by, by conducting an experiment, you're going to alter the outcome, right? And it's just that the observer has something to do with it. It's the best, you know, they try to explain it with a, with a science experiment, and people don't even understand that, you know, of like, you know, is light a, a particle or a wave? You know, that's one of the ones where, because when you start looking at it like it's a particle, it starts acting like a wave. When you start wanting it to be a wave, it starts acting like a particle. It's a, it's a really thing people can't wrap their head around so much, but you see it in the arts all the time. You know, people assume that I'm going to say something funny. They want it to be funny. So I go up there. I just kind of present it a certain way. And sometimes it's just the expression on my face. You can say this one thing. And if I say it with a certain cadence, it comes out as a joke. And if I say it with a different delivery, it sounds sad. You know. And uh, there's, there's a lot of comics who are very good with their structure and how they land a thing. Right? You know where the jokes are. You know they're telling you. It's like a magician making you take a card. Right? And they're forcing a card on you. They're telling you where the punchline is. Like, here's where it is. Some of them are very good at it. Some of them are very tight and very crisp with that, where they have like their... Um, one of my favorite comics, who's still in the clubs, is uh, Lori Kilmartin. Oh, yeah. She's fantastic. I, I interviewed her years ago for The Chronicle, yeah. Yeah, she, uh, she's really good with that. Her jokes are structured extremely well. Uh, and... Even though she's a very contemporary comic, she has this really classic structure to her jokes. Uh, she will have a setup, she will have a punchline, and she will tag it, and she will tag it again, and she will tag it again. And you know, and these, for those who don't know, a tag is like an extra punchline that you're putting on something. And uh, she, what she will have as a first or second tag would be most people's closer. Like they're really good, and uh, you know, and to me. It's all like almost like a poetic structure to, 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 to watch a comic like that, you know. And in the way she delivers it, she will get, like, she will, she kind of start and end her sentences in a way that lets you know where the joke is. So, and after she does, like, she gets you into her rhythm of, like, punchline. And then pause and tag. Pause and tag pause and tag and after a while you're just almost like being trained to laugh at certain points and it's the difference between someone who's a good writer and someone who's a great comic it's like there's a lot of good writers out there who can't pull that off you know because they also have to be a great comic you know <laughs> like that's that's the kind of thing that like it's just almost this natural rhythm of like you know just you know it's like a musician who plays by ear you know and uh, that's one of the things I love about Comedy is like you know. I think a lot of poetics have, have, have has lost that, where it's like people are really developing in the ear, and like the comics they have it, you know. Uh, really top ones, the good club comics have that that ear, and it's like really just really fun to watch for me because it's like I don't, I'm not that good, you know what I mean? Like it's like fun to watch someone who's demonstrably better than I am at something that I like to do, you know. It's like I know that you know. I'm passable at this skill or whatever. And then to see someone who's really good at it, well, oh, yeah, that's how it's done. Oh, look at that. I would have stopped there. I would have stopped there. That would have been enough. I, and it's like, nope. Yeah, she's going to tag it. Going to tag it again. Like, all right. 
cool. Like you know, it's just kind of it's kind of fun to watch. What also is uh, what I love watching about the craft of comedy is um, you, a, a joke can be even funnier if there's a two or three second gap in the next yeah. word. It's it is so technical and crafted where that's why that's why huge comedians got to go work on material for a year in front of audiences and they're doing six nights a week because they need to find those those just that little edge yeah yeah the timing's precise you know i watched Chappelle, you know about three or four nights in a row one year when he was working on stuff god it was like more than 10 years ago he was working on some of the stuff that just came out on netflix recently He's been around some of that stuff a long time. He was doing it every night, and people were like, oh, he just talks. It's like, no, no, he's got it all planned out. But he's working with the little gaps, with the little bits of timing. He's very small things you won't notice unless you've tried it yourself. You know, that like, he's got it down perfectly, you know. So. Yeah, it's almost like when uh, people say, oh man, that book was such an easy read, and they assume it was easy for the author to write. But they have no idea how much, how much painstaking editing and rewrites went into that. So it just it felt like a breezy page turner. And but when it's like when you read those, you know that author went hard and worked really hard to get to that. Right. Well, and um, yeah, you came down here. You were acting. I saw you in Amber Timberland's film, which was a, which was a polite surprise, which was a funny surprise because I went to a screening because um, I'm friends with Janet oh, yeah. Fitch when she did Paint It Black. And, uh, and I went to that screening, and I was like, I think that's Bucky. And then, and then I was like, all right, got to wait in the credits. And I was like, yep, yeah, that's Bucky. And Quentin Tarantino was sitting like right behind me, too, at that screening. I got up, and I, was, I turned around, and I'm all, oh, shit. Uh, Quentin Tarantino's seen the back of my head for two hours. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was good. Yeah, Amber Chamberlain's like an old poetry friend. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of met. <laughs> kind of met her. Um, so we we actually started talking on MySpace. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. That tells you about when that was, yeah. about 2007 or so. Yeah. Don't that, don't those seem like the innocent years? Like. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, it was it was fine. Yeah, it was like a lot different. But you know, uh, I booked a whole tour off MySpace. It was a lot better for all that shit. Yeah, like you just like there was just a lot less fake stuff on there. Yeah. But. Um, yeah, Amber um, was a remarkable poet. I mean, I really love her book, Dark Sparkler. It's really good. And it's like this kind of American poetic that, like, no one else could really. It's all poems about uh, teen actors, you know, child actors. Wait, was she an actor? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. She was in General Hospital when she was like eight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, her dad's Russ Tamblin, who was in West Side Story and a bunch of other stuff. It's a very much a Hollywood family, you know. You know, so she grew up right in the middle of it and, uh, you know, just been in there. She's all Joan of Arcadia, a long time in her, in her youth as well. Like, she was still, like, I don't know, 13 or 14 when she was on that show. And that was big for a certain demographic. And she did Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, which was, like, Goodfellas for women, you know, like as far as like women who were like 12 years old at the time, that was like everyone watched that on VHS. They a lot of sleepovers and stuff. People go nuts with that. So yeah, she had a lot of that, and, you know. But she also grew up like her dad was in with all the poets. So she grew up basically hanging out uh, in San Francisco. She would like you know when she was at in San Francisco, a lot of times she'd stay at, like Jack Hirschman's house, you know. And then like around here, like she kind of hung out with Wanda Coleman a lot. You know, that was like her bestie uh, down here. So that, those are the two poetry instructors she had uh, growing up. So she was very much into that. And we like get to talk about poetry. And, you know, I, I think Dark Sparkler is really good and really good uh, faction of like the American dream. It's like we all think that that's going to be fix our problems. Is fame will fix us. And she has a whole book of poems about the dark side of it. And so it's like kind of from this unique perspective. And that's what I really like about it. But, yeah, she put me in a uh, – we started doing some poetry readings together, and she put me in a documentary she made called The Drums Inside Your Chest. Uh, you know, and uh, I don't know if that's available anywhere. I assume it is somewhere in the streaming world. And it's a big documentary about this thing we're doing. And it's, it's really good. And um, then, you know, she she's always been on, like, 
a lot of TV shows and stuff, but always kind of like kind of more pushing her own creative side. And she like, I don't know the whole story on that, but I know it was a whole process of her acquiring the rights to the book and writing the screenplay and directing it and finding the money for it and like all that. She's kind of doing it all herself, and it's like, you know, she's doing it at the age where I was like bottoming out. At that age, I was bottoming out in like a punk house and doing nothing. You know what I mean? And she's like putting a movie together and then moving on to like have a kid and, uh, you know, become very political. And, you know, so, yeah, she made that movie and just kind of threw that bone at me. She's like, you know, do you want to be a bartender in this film? And I'm like, yeah, cool. So I just came down and did it. And then it, it took a little bit for it to come out. But, yeah, that's right around the time. You know, you know, she, yeah, like she's in... Um, She's in, oh, what is that, uh, Django? Yeah, 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 like she, you'll see her in a window of a, of a thing, and she's credited as daughter of Son of a Gunfighter, which is a reference to uh, Russ Tamlin's film, Son of a Gunfighter. So that's how she's built as daughter of Son of a Gunfighter. That's why, that's why Quentin Tarantino is sitting behind me. There's a connection there. Oh, yeah, 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 because, you know, like he just, he just loves old Hollywood stuff, you know? And, and, like, so, I mean, he loves Russ and therefore loves Amber and just, like, he's just... And wrapped in all of it, you know. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're all together, you know. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it was. It was. I. I mean, I, I just as a huge fan of Janet Fitch, and you know, just adoring her, and then going, and I was so happy to see that film finally made because I love Painted Black the book oh, yeah. so much. And then it's just like I just thought I was just like, oh my god, and she nailed the movie. You know, it's just what what I guess it seems like. Amber was the perfect person to do that film, essentially. Yeah, it's also because it's like there's not a whole lot of people involved. It's kind of on her own terms. She didn't have to take a lot of notes from other people. Right. She can just, um, uh, yeah. It was. It blew my mind. Um, and that, I, man, I can't remember when that was, but it was just. It was. It was kind of when I was down here early on, and I was just going, "Wow." It's just so cool. I, you could just see this. And then I was like sitting there going, what's David Cross doing here? That's really intriguing. And then later I found out that oh, yeah. she's married to David yeah, Cross. Yeah. yeah, they're married. Yeah. Yeah, it's fun. The, um, the, uh, did, did you, uh, did you like, so after that, did you like pursue acting or decide or go that or try to do auditions and stuff? Or how, how did you, what was that? You know, I do stuff when it's offered to me, but okay. I don't have an agent or anything. You know, if I have representation, I'd audition for stuff. Yeah. But I don't know. You know, I, you know, I have some friends who are actors, and that process seems so hard for me. I, I, I feel like I'm already getting beat down on the stuff that I'm doing that I'm trying to keep afloat, and I just I. You know, yeah, sure, yeah, I, sure. Um, if someone wants to, you know, I've I've been booked to certain things like, oh yeah, you're the. Uh, I tend to be the uh, sl the sleazy strip club patron. I don't go to strip clubs, but I guess I look like a sleazy strip club patron. I'm like, yeah. okay, you know, or um, yeah, or or a mad. Uh, they, uh, there's a film uh, that they're gonna shoot this year. I'm gonna be I'm just gonna be a mad dude who who yells at these kids, and I'm like, all right, and I'm yeah. gonna have to apologize after every yeah. take. <laughs> I know it's hard, you know. I, yeah, I, I played a, a Nazi skinhead, oh, gay bashing goth teenagers. Yeah. Uh, it's a Michelle T film, actually. And, uh, yeah, it felt kind of horrible to yell at kids. I mean, they're like, they're, they're literally teenagers. They weren't just adults playing teenagers. They're, she had teenagers playing teenagers. And uh, I just had to yell horrible shit at them, like sexual stuff. And, uh, yeah, it was felt real bad. <laughs> there's something weird, because I, I, when um, there's this, I, I, I have, like, if you don't blink in this film, Under the Silver Lake, I play a sleazy casting director for, you know, but we did, that was like a four-hour day or six-hour day and um so i had to i had to treat these models who were actually models like shit every yeah. single time they went action i had to sit there and treat them. and after every take i was like i'm sorry this is not how i act but once it's then once it was like once all that stuff is like rolling action then i got into that character and there was no getting out of that character and then cut and then i was just like i'm back to me i apologize yeah yeah it sucks yeah it's horrible, you know. Like, yeah, yeah. I, I played a sexual harasser as well, but uh, I got to harass this dude. It was uh, harassing a man, so it was actually kind of funny. And it was like, let's see if I can get him to break character. 
Like so, every time we'd roll up, like I would say something else and say, see if I can make him laugh because he's supposed to be annoyed. And I'm like, I can have fun with him because it's just Nigel. It's like just this dude, you know, and he's 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 okay. He doesn't have this experience all the time. I'm not going to trigger anything for him, you know. And it's just kind of more fun, you know. Yeah. You know, so I, was, I, I did a bunch of like uh, extra work uh, when I first came down, you know. Yeah. And I was on uh, this. TV show Crazy Ex-Girlfriend you're like you'll see the back of my head all the time but and out of focus that's like the best you'll get yeah. but I remember one day we were on set and there and I was just it was a long day so and my back was turned and I was there was this kid and he was on camera and I I just tried to keep making the weirdest faces so he would laugh in a scene yeah. that he shouldn't laugh in and he's just like sitting there trying not to look at me and <laughs> It was just like, cut. And he's like, why are you doing that? I'm like, oh, dude, I'm just trying to have fun. Yeah. I'm, I'm losing my mind. We're on hour 13 here. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Those those long days. I, um, and then what else? You know what? The, oh, Black Hole. So Because we, we we're both on Soft Skull Press. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I... Sort of. <laughs> sort of? Like, yeah. Well, no one else knows who we are there anymore. Like, I mean, they, oh. they've had a whole regime change. Yeah. It's like they're still standing... They're still sending mail to like my Oakland address, you know. It's like you guys need to stop this. And I, I don't get mail. I, I I don't know what's been sent over there. I would like try to get them to change. I can't get an address change over there anymore. So if anyone's listening over there, please get back to me. And occasionally I'll, I'll get, uh, you know, I'll try again. And I'll I'll like someone will send me an email and I'll be like, hey, can you talk to me about this thing? Like I'd love to see a sales statement, yeah. whatever. And like no one to get back to me. So it's like you know. I mean, I, like, you know, maybe I shouldn't shit talk about it here, but it's like, yeah, they're, they're dropping the ball. Like, you know, I'm a lost author out there, yeah. you know. It's a good project. It's a good, it's a good book, you know, and it's like, whatever. It's like, I don't know what's going on with it. I have no idea. No, it's a great book. I love that. When, um, oh, you were the, I, the last article I wrote for the San Francisco Chronicle was uh, Profile oh, yeah. on You for that book. Yeah, it was kind of a great way to leave the San Francisco Chronicle. I was just like, all right. And when I was freelancing, it's like, here we go. It's Bucky, mic drop, out. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, a lot of that, too, is like, you know, after that book came out, it was kind of like I, I can kind of leave the Bay Area now. It's kind of like almost like a breakup letter, you know. It's like, you know, it's like there's a lot of it. It's just like, you know, it's kind of metaphorically a lot of my experience of, like, walking around and, and not knowing what year it was anymore, you know. It's like that's how you feel. Like, walk through the mission, you know. Like, you won't, won't recognize it. When did that happen? Right, has it always been like this? I don't know. And that's kind of the feeling the whole book has, like, you know. So it's kind of that feeling of, like, you know, you're walking through the mission, and you're just arguing with your friend. It's like, wait a minute, when did this place get here? And they're like, oh, it's always been there. I'm like, no, no, it hasn't. It wasn't there. It was like two weeks ago, there was a fish market. Like, what? No, 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 it wasn't. And it's like, maybe you're both right. Maybe you're just living in different universes. And right now, they're crisscrossing, but most of the time, you're living separately. You know, and that's kind of the basis for the book. Of like, there's this parallel universes all the time that we're all living in, you know? Yeah. I mean, that, that was there any uh, film options for the movie? I mean, that that book should be made into a movie, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, you know, I there's there's two there's a script, there's a really good script of it. Yeah, yeah, and uh, written by uh, Jason Antoon and Sam Robards, and uh, you know they they did a really good job with it. You know, I I would have picked different things. I mean, you're at this thing where it's like, okay, we can use about forty percent of the book. We only have time. For about forty percent, like, what do we cut out? We got we have to cut out most of the story. What do we pick? And it's a really hard job that I couldn't do. I could have written it as a series over, like, you know, eight hours. You know, I, I think I could have done that. I think I could have written that script, but like, I don't think I could have written it into like a, a film script. So I just had to, you know, you let someone else do it. You know, what do, what do what do they think is the most interesting parts? You know. We're also in a different time where we got like Netflix and we got Hulu, who are allowing those those you know eight eight, eight hour films to be cut into series. Yeah, I mean, I mean that would be welcome too. I'm sure we'd all agree to that if, if you know if someone wanted to do that. But uh, you know, wait till then. You know, it's like this is how they're doing it and how they're pushing it. And you know, if someone likes the script and thinks like this should be a series, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure they'll agree to it. You know. I'd rather it be a series, frankly, you know, just like a series where it's like every year I could come up with seven new days in this man's life or whatever, you know. It's um, it, it's a lot of fun. To, it's, it's a lot of fun to hear. Uh, I I don't know. I don't know if this is public news. I probably can't even say this. I'll talk to you about that after. 
<laughs> um, the weird stuff you got to think about in uh, Los Angeles when you have to uh, when people are in meetings and get deals, but you don't know if it's public yet. Oh, yeah. And you got to hold your mouth. And I'm not good at holding my mouth. Oh, yeah. I just yeah. held my mouth. How did I do that? Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, that's always a thing. It's like you, you don't know. And it's like, yeah, you, you kind of don't realize how much inside information that you have. Uh, when, when, when you know, speaking of Amber Tamlin and David Cross, and they were just dating. They, it was, on, you know, they're trying to keep it a little bit private. You know? But, you know, Amber still was still at the time, like, she wasn't accepted as a woman by you know celebrity hollywood she's like the girl from traveling pants you know she's a young girl she's not allowed to be a woman and this happens to a lot of people who are child actors it's like how dare you grow up how dare you be of you know how dare you be a full-grown adult and try to have a dating life you know and uh you know i don't remember like one of the one of the tabloid rags was calling me up about a poetry reading that she and i were about to do together and I just think, oh, it's like they got the press package for this upcoming reading and they want to talk about it. And it's like a benefit for like this, you know, it was a benefit, so I wanted to promote it. And I just thought they would need to pull blurb from me about, you know, Amber's thing. And they were all trying to get me to confirm that those two of them were dating. That was it. And, you know, they didn't run any, they never, as far as I know, they didn't even report on the poetry reading at all. That they were calling it like, like saying, hey, we want to talk about the poetry you guys are doing. It's like, you know, will, you know, will her boyfriend, uh, David Cross, be there? You know, like kind of like in the middle of this thing after we talked for about like 20 minutes, you know, like, you know, and I was like, oh, and it would have been really easy to be like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, we'll be like fourth. But like, you know, it's like, oh, you got to talk to her publicist if you want to know about her personal life. I can't comment on a personal life. I can talk about this poetry you want to do. It's, it's a really good benefit for this. I just talked about, kept talking about the charity. It's like, it's a really good benefit for this Heart Foundation. And, and like, you should do this. <laughs> like, you know, like, you know, it's like, you know, it's like really important that we raise money for this and everything. And, you know, Amber's a really good poet. And, you know, she's one of these multi-talented people. And like, you know, they're just all like, is your boyfriend going to be there? You know, like, who's your boyfriend? Who's your daddy? And, you know, that's that's kind of like how a lot of that shit goes where it's like, you know, it's it's hard to know. Like, cause, you know, you just know stuff from being around people and uh, like, hell, you know, I'm, I'm in a 12 step program, you know, and, and uh, you know, I see people in there, you know, that, you know, as you don't know about uh, that, like there's some very public, like drunken people. But then there's some very private ones who like got sober before they started acting, you know. And they got sober, and then they have the wherewithal to like go to auditions. So they become famous after. So they don't have the big stories about them wrecking cars and whatnot. And it's like, you know, no one like they're not publicly known, but it's real easy to, you know, be like, I, you know, I know so and so from, you know, from this group. It's real easy just to blurt that out, like because you think, oh, everybody knows because this guy's like very, you know, this guy's very, very much around inside 12-step circles, you know, and then you're like, oh, no, no, no one knows that. Like, this is, you know, even that, even on a thing that's, like, built around anonymity, it's really easy to forget is what I'm saying. It's really easy to forget and blurt it out somewhere, and then then you're kind of ruining things to other people, you know, and, and, you know, it's just like, you know, because you think stuff that's like, oh, I'm just like a nobody, and I know this, you know, what what does it matter if I know who someone's dating or who just got a dog or whatever it's not even like you don't even think it's like industry related and it is and it's like you you just can't mention like you have a famous friend you just can't ever mention them so it's a weird kind of omerta like you know it's like um one of my one of my homies one of my really close friends uh uh is is just got on tv series and you know and it's weird you know going from him like because i i moved here and he started getting the auditions you know, he was in his audition process. He's like, you know, it's it's really nerve wracking. And then he got the role, and then he's on a thing. And you know, it's now he's on like a TV show. And it's like, you know, his guy who's who's go to like House of Pies or Cantors or Norms or whatever. We go hang out like about every two weeks. We go like, you know, he get off some set or something. And be like, it'd be eleven thirty, and I'm like the only guy he knows that's still up. You know, it's our age. Like all our friends are either asleep or like have kids or whatever. So he called me eleven thirty. He's like, let's go to Norms, and I'm like, okay. And it went from just being like, you know, two assholes at Norms to like, now we walk into a place, people are, are coming over, people are saying stuff, you know, and like, you know, it's like we're at the Rainbow Room, you know, we're out there, we're out there one night, and just like this guy, like, you know, 
this guy's like eyeballing us all night. And it just looks like I'm thinking, like, okay, you know, I haven't been in a fight in a while. It's going to happen, like, you know, because they're like, you know, they're like, like I kind of see there was like, there's some tough guys, you know, and, and I'm like, I mean, it's not a guy pretty big, though. It's like, oh, we can, we can do this. You guys want to keep looking, you know, like, if this goes down on the way out, like, it's going to go down, like, you know, like, and then, of course, like, right as, you know, the check drops, this guy comes over and he's like, you know, my wife's a really big fan of the show. Can you, can you take a picture with her? She's, like, too shy to come say hi. Can, and he's all like, yeah. But, I mean, it's like, it changes so quickly here. And it's like, I don't even not, I'm even afraid to say his name now. Like, yeah, like yeah. he's, like, one of my best friends here. Right. You know, and it's like, because he's private. You know, and it's like, I don't want to say where he is or what he's doing or right. what, what kind of, you know, what kind of vehicle he, he rides or drives, you know, whatever. And it's just like, I, you know, it's just whatever he's got a super macho manly vehicle and, and i have a smart car and we park them next to each other and it's just kind of fun like you know because everybody's looking at his and looking at mine and, and they you know get out and we hug you know <laughs> everybody's like who are these guys you know and, and you know i'm afraid to like mention these things now it's like, i don't know what's public what's not yeah, yeah. you know and, and it's like it's a whole realness of the world here you know it's it's funny like it's just a different culture of that here than I'm used to, you know. I mean, you see people like, you know, go to Trader Joe's in, like, North Hollywood or whatever. Like, you, you see this guy, you think you know him. It's like, oh, no, no, he just got shot in the face with Sons of Anarchy. You know, he's a character actor. You know, they're all over there. Like, you know, and it's like, oh, wow, you don't know these people. Like, you know, but we kind of wreck. I'm a big fan of pie. I'm doing a pie crawl for my 50th birthday. Yeah, yeah. I got eight spots on the list. And I'm going to hit them all. Yeah. That's a fantastic idea. Are you going to have a slice of pie at every spot? Yeah, that's the idea. And then there's some spots where there's, like, an option. I'm not sure where I'm going. Like, do I hit up, like, Atticus Creamery and Pies, or do I hit up the Apple Pan? You know, they're right next to each other. Do I, or do I dare get both? Like, can I handle both? I don't know. Like, but, you know. I've been, that's, a lot, that's a lot of sugar. It is. It is. I can eat a lot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the, um, oh, but the, as far as those tabloids are concerned, you know, I... I I've been on the other end of that too when they were trying to find out information about Prince being a Jehovah's Witness. So they got in touch with me because they wanted to talk about my book and my movie. Right. Oh, yeah. And then, but Prince had just died. And then all of a sudden it started going to, okay, and how do you feel about Prince? And they were trying to get me to say bad shit about the Jehovah's Witnesses and okay. Prince. And I would not give him anything. I'm like, he was an adult and he was a great musician. That's all I'm giving you. And they were just like, oh, uh, but what do you really think? We'll talk about your book and whatever in the article. And I'm like, I just like, you're not getting anything. There's nothing. I, I have nothing to offer. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. It's, 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 it's rough because people don't care. They don't care what happens. And, you know, um, I remember one time it, there was a, a San Francisco-based magazine that was doing a thing on, like, the local literary festival. And... This guy, you know, like, there was this one thing, too. There was this one reading that was kind of had the kind of a romantic angle. And uh, so he was like, well, who who would you most, which writer do you, would you most want to hook up with? Like, you know, like, or whatever. It's like, oh, I can't answer that. It's like off the record. And, you know, and I was like, and I said it. And he fucking fully printed it. He fully printed it. And, and, he, and he said, oh, man, that was, like, I said, I'm really sorry about that. I'm like, I'll be really sorry when I see you. Yeah. You know, like, don't let me find out who you are because I, I know what you did, yeah. you know. And it's like, and it's heard nothing back yeah. from ever. And it's like, I let that go. I, I, I personally, I kept the article for a while. I was like, I need to get rid of this. And, and honestly, I don't remember his name anymore. Yeah. But it was really mad. And I ended up, it was someone I also didn't really know. Just someone from the scene I had a crush on, and luckily because we're writers, I, I found a friend of hers real quickly, and I was like, "Look," he told me that was off the record, and you know, she had done a lot of uh, erotica type work, so she she's used to be people saying a lot of stuff like that. So she was like, she she didn't even care. She was like, she's like a lot of my work is revolved on fantasy, and and, and people are thinking of me. I know this, like, you know, and she was really nice about it. So it turned out not to be a thing, but it was like really super embarrassing. Cause you know, run into her. It's like someone I would run into like, I don't know, every six to nine months, you know, like two, two years, every twice a year, or maybe three times a year, you know, depending on what reading was going on. So we own bills together and 
that I mean that's just pathetic because when it's for him to even apologize it's like yeah. no you wrote that down and that was off the record you don't write that down it doesn't even go to your editor <laughs> yeah and then of course later like she posted a picture of her on her Instagram with my book like a couple years later and I was just about my brain just about exploded um, yeah um, it, it's this person oh I don't think I know her. Oh yeah, yeah, she's she's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's very pretty. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, actually, like she looks basically. One of the things too that's kind of embarrassing is bears an uncanny resemblance to my first real girlfriend. Oh. Yeah, but she's a blonde version of my first real girl. But the eyes and the smile, like you know, it's just like it's it is a thing. Like she's very pretty, but it is like the eyes and the smile you see her up close. It's just like that that first that first one that got away. You know, where it's just like still always have like. A little thing for it so i'm like huh you know it's just like when she like you know so that that's what it really was even though she was like you know yeah just kind of even pretty from a distance like you know it used to, yeah i still like get a little goofy like if, if i if i was near it like i was like oh like, you know just whatever so yeah but it's at the same time it's almost like really cool to still have that feeling for you know yeah, I know. I'll be 50 in two weeks and I still get crushes and stuff. You know, it's great. You know, and, and it's, yeah. And I still, well, the thing is, now I know why. Like, I know why. It's like, oh, yeah. It's like, she looks just like, you know. Uh, the, she looks like the, the first love. And that, I, it's really interesting to me because that first love means everything to me as well. And I have, I have everything clocked out of, you know, I know exactly, you know, we made out during, um, we once saw Echo and the Bunnymen together when we were kids. And when they played Lips Like Sugar, I finally got the courage to kiss her. <laughs> and it was just like, and that was always the first one for me. It's, yeah. and, that, and that's always in my heart. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and with that, Bucky, thanks so much for being on the show, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Bucky Sinister, everyone, on Drinks with Tony. Check out his novel, The Black Hole. And go to Little Joys if you happen to be near Echo Park in Los Angeles on Monday nights as he co-produces the comedy showcase called The Business. Have a great week. See you next Wednesday. Same drink time. Same drink channel.